says you're not allowed to go out with one sandal at a time when you don't have a wound on your foot. The Mishnah tells us that. The Mishnah doesn't tell us why. And what's the problem with going out with only one sandal? So there's two different possible reasons why there's a problem with going out with only one sandal. One reason is people will see that you're walking with one sandal on your foot. They're going to assume that you have another sandal that you're actually carrying on you, right? And you're not allowed to carry in public on, the, in, on Shabbos. People will think that you're carrying, so it's not actually that you're carrying, but people will think that you're carrying. So this is a, what we call maris ayin, right? So we know that there are things that we don't do in regular, in under circumstances, we don't do certain things that people will think badly of us, right? So this is one of the cases. You don't walk outside with only one sandal, those people will think you're actually carrying the sandal in on your person. Now, another different possible reason why it might be forbidden to walk outside with one sandal is because if you're walking around with one sandal, people will look at you and laugh at you. And look at you and laugh at you, you might be tempted to pick it up and carry it with you, which would be a problem. Now, the, the Mishnah tells us, though, that there's an exception to this rule, that if you have a wound on your foot, then you're allowed to do it. What's the case exactly? So if you have a wound on your foot, you're permitted to go out with only one sandal. What case are we talking about? Which foot had the wound on it? You could wear a sandal on the foot that has a wound on it. So if you're wearing a sandal on the foot that has a wound on it, then people will not be concerned. People will make fun of you that you're going out with one sandal. They'll recognize you're wearing the sandal because you have a wound on your foot. They won't, make, they won't say, oh, he only has one, one sandal on, but the other sandal's in his pocket. No, he's a person who doesn't normally wear two sandals. He doesn't wear any sandals normally. He happens to have a wound on his foot, and that's why he's going out with a sandal. So therefore, there would be no concern. People will say that the sandals here for, for pain. Chibarav says, what, what, what are we talking about over here that you can go out with a sandal on your foot? The sandal is on the foot that does not have the wound on it. He says, why are you wearing one sandal? For the sake of comfort, not for the sake of actual pain, but for the sake of comfort. Now, the foot that doesn't have a, that has a maca on it, right? It's clear. Why are you not wearing a sandal on that foot? Because you have a maca on it. And I guess for some reason, if you have a maca on your foot, a wound on your foot, you wouldn't wear a sandal there for comfort, right? I mean, it's a little strange to me. I would have pictured that if you have a wound on your foot, then you probably would want to wear a sandal. Maybe you have some sort of a, a cat, I don't know, not a callus, but maybe you have some sort of a... Um, a scab or, or on a, where if you wore a sandal, it would rub against it. So that's why it's clear. The reason why you're only wearing one sandal is not because you have another sandal in your per, on your person and not because it's not even embarrassing that people will make fun of you. You're wearing one sandal because the other foot can't have a sandal on it right now because it has a wound. Rabbi Yechanan also agrees with the opinion of Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan said to Shaman Bar Abba, give me my sandal or my shoe. He gave him the right one. So he says, basically, you have made me like a maka. Right? So what's going on over here? So the important thing to know is Rabbi Yochanan's opinion is that you're actually supposed to put on your right shoe. You're supposed to put on your left shoe before your right shoe. Right? Halacha today, we don't do that. Right? The halacha, and we'll see there's going to be another opinion, and that's the halacha that we follow. We put on our right shoe first, and if we're wearing shoelaces, we tie our left shoe first, and then tie the right shoe. So this gemara is the source for that halacha. Rabbi Yochanan did not hold that way. Rabbi Yochanan held that you put the left shoe on first and then the right shoe. The reason why Rabbi Yochanan held that way is because Rabbi Yochanan, are you guys together? Yeah, we had a board meeting. Sorry. Oh, cool, cool. Okay. I thought maybe you guys were playing hockey already. Yeah. So Rabbi Yochanan, so, okay, fine. So Rabbi Yochanan said that you should put on the, the left shoe first. 
So when this guy hands him his right shoe first, Rabbi Yochanan was of the opinion that if he puts his right shoe on first, he can't put the left shoe on at all. So if he can't put his left shoe on at all, then the problem is if he doesn't put his left shoe on, if he doesn't put his left shoe on, then he's going to end up only wearing one shoe. And if he goes outside and only wearing one shoe, you're going to make me like someone who has a maka, someone who has a wound. And because he has a wound, that's why he's able to go outside with one sandal on total. So how do you know that therefore he's the one who, therefore he holds like the opinion that if you have a wound on your foot, you're permitted to go out with the sandal. If it's on the foot that the, if it, the foot that the, that the sandal is on is on the foot that has the wound. How do you know? There's no proof. Maybe he really holds like and the left foot had a wound. People think the left foot had a wound and that's why he went out with the sandal on his right foot. You made it that my left foot is one that has a wound on it. The same way we do with, when it comes to putting on tefillin, that's the process that we follow when it comes to putting on our shoes. Tefillin is small. You put your tefillin on your left arm. Your, tefillin, your, your shoe also should go on your left foot first, right? Now, what's the idea of putting the things on your left foot, left, left foot first, right foot first? What, what's going on over here, right? What, what are we playing games over here? There's some sort of skula, right? Some sort of a magical process. So, the, the, what we understand is like this, the Hashem, um, the, the right hand of Hashem is supposed to symbolize um, uh, rachamim, right, mercy. And the left hand of Hashem is supposed to symbolize um, din, judgment. Now, how does, I don't even know what that means. Like Hashem doesn't have hands, Hashem doesn't have feet, Hashem does not, we're, we're ascribing human qualities to Hashem. So the whole thing's a little bit strange in the first place. But even if this would be true, that Hashem would have a body and Hashem's right side is more associated with kindness, left side more associated with strict judgment, how does that change anything? Which shoe we put on first, right? How is that going to affect anything in terms of our lives, in terms of how Hashem relates to us, right? So I think the answer is, as the answer is, whenever we have these types of topics, the idea that we're trying to convey is we're trying to convey a, a message to be internalized that you should be focusing on this aspect of Hashem, right? And through focusing on that aspect, that will help you concretize the idea that there's something real that we're speaking to. And it's not just an abstract idea, right? So it's not that it's actually going to change anything in Hashem's mind. Oh, he put a shoe on his right foot. Now I'm going to judge him more, more right foot side and not left foot side. There's no such thing. That, that's not real. But what's real is that through us reminding ourselves through mindfulness, through thinking about everything that we do throughout the day, we're doing it for specific purposes and specific reasons. And through remembering the specific reason why we do the right foot first, according to, according to the Chachamim, right? It's related to the fact that we're trying to remember the compassionate side of Hashem. So putting that in our minds, that will keep it more real. According to Rav it's related to something else. Put your left foot on first, left, left shoe on first, because you want to relate it to the tefillin. You want to be thinking about the tefillin, right? That's really what it's about. You want to be thinking about the tefillin. You want to be thinking about the connection with Hashem that tefillin symbolizes. So, Mesbe. The Gemara asks us a question from a, uh, a question from a, um, a Brisa. Kishu nail, nail shal yamin, the achakach nail shal small. It says that first you put on your right foot, your right shoe, and then you put on your left shoe. Omer of Yasef, hash the tanya hachi, the Omer of Yechanan hachi, the Avadachi, Avid, with Avadachi, Avid. So Rav Yehoshua says something very interesting. He says, Rav Yechanan said, put on your left shoe first. The Brisa says, put on your right shoe first. Now that the Brisa said one thing, and Rav Yechanan said the other thing, you could do either one, either do your left shoe first, your right shoe first. Either way, you're going to have someone to, to follow. The problem with this is, Rav Yechanan is an Amora. The Brisa is written by a Tana. Rav Yechanan can't argue on a Tana. So what exactly is going on over here? How, how can you say, well, do either one? Well, which one is it? How's Rabbi Yechonon arguing? Did you really be asking? How's Rabbi Yechonon arguing on a Tana? 
So I think we have to assume that Rabbi Yochanan probably was coming from a, a place where he must have had a different Tanaic statement that he was relying on. So then we have one Tan against another Tan, so you can go with either opinion. There is actually one Rishon who is of the opinion that Rabbi Yochanan was close enough to the era of the Tanayim, of the era of the Mishnah, that he actually was able to argue on, on the Mishnah, which is only one opinion in, in the Rishonim, but it could be that that would be the answer over here too. What's your proof? Maybe Rabbi Yechon never heard this brisa, right? So here's the interesting thing. We always assume that Amarayim knew every single Mishnah backwards and forwards by heart. But brisas they might not have been familiar with. They might not have known every brisa. So maybe the fact that Rabbi Yechon said you put on your left shoe first is because he didn't know this brisa. He wasn't familiar with it. But if he would have heard it, then he would have, he would have been chaser. He would have uh, retracted his view. Or he heard of the b'raisa, but he didn't think that Allah is like that Mishnah. So you can't say either one is good. You got to pick your side. Don't say either one is good. Either you believe like Rabbi Yechanan or you believe like the b'raisa, straight up. But don't say either one is good. Someone who is a someone who fears God can fulfill both opinions. How to satisfy both opinions? Umanu, who is this? Mar Brady Rabbanit. Mar the son of Rabbanit. What did he do? Sayim diyamane, but loy kater. But sayim the smalei the kater. First he put on his right shoe. He didn't tie it. Then he put on his left shoe, and then he tied it. And then afterwards, vahadar kater diyamina. And then afterwards, he tied his right shoe. Now it's important to know halachically. So if you're wearing um, you know, flip-flops or any you know, slip-ons, you put on your right shoe first, obviously that's enough. But even more than that, if you're wearing Velcro sneakers, right? Uh, it's been a while probably for most of us and hopefully a while till we start doing them again. And some old people start wearing Velcro sneakers. So but if you're wearing Velcro, you actually can put on your shoe and tie your right shoe, not tie it, but you know, Velcro it before you put on the left shoe in the first place. Because the whole idea is that tying your shoelaces is similar to putting on your tefillin straps. It's something that you're, it's more of a process of tying. And therefore, since it's similar to tefillin, therefore it makes sense to sort of honor both opinions. Put on your right shoe first to think about the compassion of Hashem, and then tie your left shoe first because you're thinking about the tefillin and giving that precedence also. Slavic, you do have Velcro sneakers? Is that what you wanted to say? No, I was gonna say, but I don't really think there's a practical implication, but like I don't untie my laces at all. On my shoes, but they do have laces. But I guess it doesn't. Really, there's no practical implication. Yeah. So that, then you would just put on your right one first. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there wouldn't have any practical things like that. But some of those Jordans. I mean, when I was a kid, um, they, they used to sometimes have the the flap on top of the top of the shoelaces, right? I guess you wouldn't be able to get up to the flap until you actually did the shoelaces first. So it'd be pretty irrelevant, anyways. Okay. Um, Does this mean for for ski boots you should do right and then left? And also strap them up. Um, yeah, no, you put on the right, strap it, and then put on the left and strap it. Anything that's just oh, one second, ski boots, but ski boots have laces too, right? No. I never did downhill skiing, I only ever did cross country. Um, yeah, but it's just if it's just the strap, then you you do the right foot, strap it, and then put on the left foot and then strap the left foot. Hey, just because we have a small group, so I don't mind derailing for two minutes, but and this goes with like some of the other things, but um like why? Why do like why does God care about this stuff? Like seriously, well, like, just because we have a smaller group that's live doesn't mean there's not a full audience listening on the podcast. That's fine. <laughs> they don't listen. <laughs> there's a guy. There's a guy. Obi Punjabi, has a Punjabi, Punjabi guy Punjabi that he was very Pakistan. excited to tell me that. <laughs> that's pretty funny. I got, the I got, daily active users of the podcast are up 20% uh, day over day. So I think that's almost just, as much as our PayPal stock tonight. Actually. It's just so. a bot going on uh, Anchor. I wonder if you're right, but I, I got an email from Anchor saying that I, I got listened to a thousand times. And in the email, it like broke down like where people are listening from. So one of the people is listening 
sometimes from Punjab, Pakistan. <laughs> I was like, who that was. It might have been Garrison. You never I know. Much you pay him for episodes to listen to. So. <laughs> but either way, Slavic, I don't think you were listening so well earlier because I was kind of addressing that point. Like, what, is, what does it mean? Why does that shit Nah, you didn't address it enough. I was, I was in a board <laughs> meeting trying to shape the future of our show. But, um, right, exactly. Um, I, I'm telling Slavic that uh, this has just been uh, descent into things that bother me. We went from uh, belt buckles to sandals now to this. I'm telling you, you're losing me big time. So I think the answer is like this. I think the answer is that, that it's not that Hashem necessarily cares about, about this specific thing, that Hashem cares if we do X or over Y. Hashem doesn't care if we do X over Y, per se. But there, there's two different ideas, I think, that, that we can use. So one is the Rambam. The Rambam's opinion is that the mitzvahs don't inherently have like some sort of inherent value. At least there are mitzvahs that don't have inherent value. Value is Hashem told us to listen to him. And that's the value. It's not anything inherent. It's not like if we do X, it's going to change lots of different things. No, it's not. Hashem wants us to listen to him. right? Because And we can get into that conversation, exactly why Hashem wants us in the world in the first place. But whatever. For whatever reason Hashem wants us in the world, whatever reason Hashem wants us to listen to him, he therefore gave us mitzvahs so that we could listen to him. On Monday night, I was learning a, a, a um, mitzvahs, right? Going through something with the, with the women's class. And we were talking about the fact that um that the non-Jews, right, no no Noahides, right, they only have seven mitzvahs, right? And the Jews we have six hundred and thirteen. But in truth, the Noah the people from the B'nai Noah really have a lot more mitzvahs, right? They only call it seven, but it's really seven categories. They really have many of the mitzvahs that we have. They have a law against no sexual immorality. But that really includes what we have as thirty different laws. They have only one to include everything, right? There's no specific one not to sleep with another woman, not to sleep with a, another man's wife, not to sleep with a relative. They don't have it separately. They just have one big thing, right? So what's the difference? So the Sefer HaChinuch explains, Hashem wanted to give us more merit. So he gave us separate mitzvahs. And through each mitzvah being listed separately, he gives us more merit. But I think that's what the, what the Ramah would say is, we have different mitzvahs, and the different mitzvahs, not all of them necessarily have to make sense. We're just commanded to do so. Now that's in general. I think this is not that not that case though, because this is a case of the chachamim coming along and making up their own mitzvah, right? It's not a mitzvah on the Torah level. So I think what the chachamim are trying to do is they're trying to create a sense of mindfulness, right? They're trying to make it that every action that we do throughout the day, we can actually link it to something on a holier level. Now, how do we take putting on your shoes something so mundane? Everybody has to put on their shoes. How do you make that more mindful? How do you make that something to actually help build a, a greater connection with Hashem? So every time you put on your shoe, if you think to yourself, I'm putting on my right shoe first for the purpose of remembering that Hashem's kindness should be stronger, that's going to change my, my thought process to make it less abstract to whatever extent is possible to make it less abstract. The nature of the relationship is obviously going to always be an abstract relationship. So we're always trying to build a greater sense of mindfulness. And instead of getting caught up in, in everything that we're doing in this world, always think of it in, in the context of, what does it do in terms of relationship with God? And that's the best answer I could give. I, I you're you're, you're getting into Japanese Zen and martial arts territory here, Rabbi. We can talk about this later. But okay. the, point, the point is, is that every single action in uh, the way you, like in Kudo, every single thing that you do, how you draw the bow, how you approach the target, how you stand, everything is codified for precisely the reason that you just mentioned. I mean, Lahavdu, right? But right, right. The same, it's the same idea. Yeah, yeah, it is the same idea, that's true. Okay, so um, let's see. Where are we up to? 
basically concludes by saying, I saw Rav Kahana, Rav Kahana said, I don't care, it doesn't make a difference, which tree you put on first. Now, as it happens, <laughs> you identify with him. So um, you might not identify with everything else that Rav Kahana did. Uh, but that that aspect I am, that I'm aware of. I never said I agree with everything. Just you know. <laughs> so so uh, not the Ramah for sure paskins like um like this medium opinion that basically you should put on your right shoe first and put on your left shoe. If I remember correctly, I don't know if the Svardim Svardim might actually paskin like Rav Kahana. Like it could be Rambam paskins like Rav Kahana. I don't remember, but I'm not sure if Svardim had the same uh same obligation. Maybe ask Hila if, if she heard of putting on the right shoe first, and maybe she'll know. Uh, we learned in a brisa. small. First you put on your right shoe, and then afterwards you put on your left shoe. Taking your shoes off, first you take off your left shoe, and then afterwards you take off your right shoe. When you're washing yourself, first you wash your right hand, then you wash your left hand. Once again, when it comes to anointing yourself, first the right, then the left. If you want to be anointing your whole body with oil, then what do you do? First, you should anoint your head. To, to show that your head is ruling over your entire body, right? So once again, when you're playing games over here, you're showing deference to your head because your head rules over your, your heart, right? It's all a joke, right? Well, we're, we're just trying to express again the importance of rational thinking, and that should overtake the more emotional side of you and the more uh, instinctive side of you, your more animalistic side. So your rational brain is able to make decisions. Now, obviously, it's not really heart that's making the emotional decisions, and it's not really the heart that's making the animalistic decisions. But that's how people perceive it is, you're thinking with your heart, you're thinking with your mind, right? So by anointing your head first, it's a way of reminding yourself, rational rules supreme, right? Happens to be, I literally just saw a Madrash a half hour, not a half, 45 minutes ago, and the Madrash explains that, um, that uh, uh, David Amalek basically says in Tehillim that the head is the most important part of the body because the, the Chachma is the most important thing that Hashem has created, Chachma, wisdom. Right? So that's really what you're trying to do over here. It's not some sort of heebie-jeebie type of idea. It's also the mindfulness that the head is the most important part of your body in the sense of that should be ruling your life, your, your rational side. The Leibut Tefillin, you're not allowed to go out on Shabbos wearing tefillin. Not even, not even according to the Mandama, according to the opinion that Shabbos is a time when you're not allowed to wear tefillin. There's machlekes um, in the Gemara in, um, I want to say Yuma. Let me see. No, it's in Erevin. It's Erevin and Menachas. There's machlekes in Erevin and Menachas. If Shabbos is a time you're allowed to wear tefillin, clearly we hold Shabbos is a time you're not allowed to wear tefillin. But the question is, does this Mishnah have to be going according to the opinion that Shabbos is a time when you don't wear tefillin? The Mishnah says you can't go out wearing tefillin. Even according to the Mandamar, even according to the Mandamar, that Shabbos is a time when you could wear tefillin, you should not go out with tefillin on Shabbos. Why? Maybe you'll take it off on Shabbat. Some people say it on the Seifa. They explain that this dependency on that Machlekes is really going on the Seifa then to the Mishnah. And if you go out with your tefillin on, you're not going to have to bring a Kermachatas. Amr of Safra says, Shabbos not tefillin. According to the Mandama, that Shabbos is the time for wearing tefillin. Even according to the one who says that Shabbos is the time you're not supposed to wear tefillin, you don't have to bring a carbon chattas. Because why? Even if, even if you say, listen, it's not a time for wearing tefillin. So by wearing tefillin, you're really carrying something. No, wearing tefillin is considered to be part of the way that people dress. 
right? It literally becomes part of the way that people dress. And certainly in those days when they wore tefillin the whole day. So even if Shabbos is not a time for wearing tefillin, wearing tefillin on Shabbos is still not considered to be carrying on a Torah level because it, it actually becomes part of the way that you dress. But we have to assume it's muktzah. Yeah, that's a different conversation. No, it's not so simple that tefillin are muktzah. That's a different conversation. And certainly according to the one who says the Shabbos is his man tefillin, it's not muktzah. Even, well, yeah, according to the one who says Shabbos is not his man tefillin, it might not be muktzah. It could be, it is mukta, it could be, it's not mukta. It's really machlekes. It's machlekes um, apayskim. But I think everybody agrees if you're wearing the tefillin for the sake of shmirah, that it's not mukta on Shabbos. If you're not wearing the tefillin for the sake of doing a mitzvah, and you, if you're actually wearing tefillin on Shabbos, not for the sake of doing a mitzvah, it's not mukta. So I, I know I have a friend in Israel who, very busy guy, is a rabbi, and he had no time at all during the week to teach his, his bar mitzvah, soon to be a bar mitzvah son, how to put on tefillin. So he started teaching his son how to put on tefillin on Shabbos. Now, I'm not, not recommending doing that because you got to be normal and it's not so normal. But the point is, you are allowed to put on tefillin on Shabbos under certain limited circumstances. So it's not so clear if it's really muktzah at all, but that, that's a different conversation. Um, okay. okay, so by the way, if you guys thought that, uh, that up until now, this was, was getting you a little turned off, just wait till we do the next tomorrow. The next tomorrow sounds like this. It says that you're not allowed to go out with the, this amulet on a, a time period when it's not been written by a, a uh, an experienced person. In other words, someone whose whose amulets have been proven to have efficacy. Uh, and the reason why people wear amulets is to protect them from specific illnesses. All you need to be able to go out with this amulet on Shabbos, and it's considered that you're not carrying, right, is for it to be an amulet that is written by someone who is an experienced amulet writer and has proven to have been successful at stopping certain illnesses from coming. You don't have to say that not only is he a proven writer, but even that the amulet itself has already been proven that it actually works. All you need to prove is that he's someone who's a, a proven amulet writer, not that the specific amulet is, is successful. Um, these were double blind randomized uh, trials that would figure out if it's successful or not. You have to know that. So, um, I'll bring you a proof. It says in the Mishnah, you can't go out with a Kamiya, you can't go out with an amulet at a time when it's not from someone who's experienced. It says when it's not from someone who is not experienced. It doesn't say when it's not a experienced, an experienced Kamiya. Shmamina, proof. What's a Kamiya that's considered to be uh, an, experienced, an experienced amulet that will be successful? Anything that has been proven to be successful at healing or at stopping something from happening three times. Both if there's a kamiya that's based on, on words. In other words, it's a kamiya that has writings in it or letters of Hashem's name. Or if it's a kamiya that's based on ikrin. Ikrin means some sort of, uh, you know, herbs that will protect you from illnesses. Whether you're trying to protect someone from a scenario of where it's not going to be a you know, threat to his life, or even it's coming to protect someone from a threat to his life. Either way, it's permitted to go out with that. Um, Oh, okay, fine. Even, it doesn't have to be someone who actually has had an illness in the past and is worried that the illness will come back and attack him. Even if he's just someone from a family where this illness is, uh, you know, a genetic predisposition and he's likely to get this illness, even that he's permitted to do.
Now, the kosher matter, even permitted to tie it and untie it in the public domain. Why? Because we're not afraid that he's going to take it off. Why? Because he's never going to take this off his body because he's so terrified of getting the illness, he'll never take it off his body. However, he's not permitted to tie it onto a part of his, of his clothing. He's only permitted to wear it if it's actually tied onto his body. He's permitted to go out. Um, and the reason why he can't go out, um, the reason why he can't go out with this into the public domain if it's tied onto a part of his clothing is because since that's atypical to wear it if you're trying to protect yourself off of tied onto your clothing, so it would seem people would be under the impression that he's wearing it not to protect himself, but rather some other reason, in which case they'll think he's carrying. But Tanya, we learned in a bracelet. What's a kimiyamumfa? What's a, an amulet that's proven? Anything that has healed three different people, like one. The Bryce says that the only type of mumcha on a kimiyah is if it's actually healed three different people. The other Bryce that we said said that the author of this kimiyah is okay as long as it heals, um, as long as it heals three, one person three times. So he says like this, are you trying to prove the efficacy of the author? Or are you trying to prove the efficacy of the actual Kamiya? So to prove the efficacy of the author, it could be one person three times. Prove, prove the efficacy of the, I'm sorry, prove the efficacy of the author, it has to be, um, it has to be, which one? Prove the efficacy of the author, of the author, it has to be, it has to be that it actually healed, it ha- healed three different people. To prove the efficacy of the Kamiya, it could be that it healed one person three times. Amar Papa, Shitali, Tlas Kamiya, Tlas Gabri, Tlasa, Tlasa Zimni. It's obvious to me that if you have three different Kamiyas, three different people, and it worked on three different occasions with these three different people. So basically, a total of nine of nine successful uh, Kamiya operations. Zimni, It Mechi Gabra, It Mechi Kamiya. Then that's going to be clear that that will prove that the Kamiya is successful and that the person who wrote it is successful. Tlasa Kamiya, Tlasa Gabri, Chad Chad Zimna. Let's say you have three different Kamiyas, one to, to, one, to, one, one to three different each Kamiya to one different person, right? To three different people total. And each one only healed one time. Gabra it mechi, Kamiya le it mechi. Then all we see is that the one who wrote the Kamiyas is someone who is a successful Kamiya writer. We don't see that the individual Kamiyas are actually maybe successful. If it will be on anybody else, maybe it wouldn't work again. Chad Kamiya le klasa Gabri, one Kamiya for three people. Kamiya it mechi, Gabra le it mechi. Then we only see that one Kamiya worked for, we see that this Kamiya is powerful, but we don't see that that these three people, that we don't see that this person necessarily is a, is an, a, a, a successful writer. You have three Kameyas for one person. Each Kameya was only used on one person one time. Of course, it's not, not any proof. Do we see that the three Kameyas that are written by the one individual, do we see that that guy is now an experienced writer or not? Do we say, well, listen, he successfully protected this, this guy three times, he successfully protected three different people? Or do we say that the mazel of this person, the mazel of this individual who was healed or protected by this, uh, by this writer, maybe it's just his mazel that caused it to work? You want to finish with the take, it was unresolved. And just to be clear, it, it, the halacha today is if you're going somewhere without an area, you can't go out with a, with a kamiya, right? Because we, we do not believe that, um, that kamiyas have, um, have the same. In those days, they had this belief that a kamea would have a you know a healing power. Maybe it was the placebo effect. You know, I, you know. Actually, I shouldn't speak so so quickly. I don't know. Maybe there's some healing power to a kamea that has Hashem's name in it. But let's say the ikrin that might have been just a placebo effect. Um, but it also would have to be something that everybody recognizes that people wear for the sake of healing, right? And I don't think we're we're on that level today. Ibailu.
Let's say you have a Kameya that's written with Hashem's name, right? Does that Kameya then become holy or not, right? What, what's the not Kameya? What's the difference? So what's the Kameya to teach us? If they had to like overcome the teach you to save it in front of a fire, Allah is like this, something's burning on Shabbos in a fire, right? And there's something very holy that's going to be burned. So you're allowed to actually go out and take it into a courtyard, into a chatzar, that does not have an Erev on it, right? Because that's only a, a dindrabana that you can't carry into the courtyard. And Chachamim said you're allowed to do it for the sake of, of saving, let's say, a safer Torah or, or, uh, or a safer. And the question is, do you also do that for a Kamea that has Hashem's name in it? And the answer is no, you don't. Because we see from here the fact that um, it says explicitly that you don't, you don't have to save these from a, a concern of fire. So that's not what we're coming to discuss. It doesn't have the holiness that you would actually save from the fire. Ela rather is coming to the question of, are you allowed to bury it? Or not, are you allowed to, I'm sorry. Are you obligated to bury it if you no longer want to use it? Right? It's a shameless question. So a kamiya with names on it that were written for a very functional purpose and not for the sake of study, does that have to be buried as to become holy? Tashima, bring a proof. It says that if you have a name of Hashem written on the hands of a vessel or on the karyamita, the legs of a, um, of a bed, you should cut it off the bed and then bury it. So that's not the question. That's also obvious. So what's the question? What difference does it make if it's holy or not? The question is, you're allowed to, to take the kamea with you into a bathroom, right? So if it's something that's holy, and you can't go into the bathroom with a sitter, right? you're allowed to go into the bathroom with this kamea honored. You have to take it off. Do we say it has a holiness in it and therefore it's forbidden? Or do we say it does not have this level of kedusha holiness and permitted to go into a bathroom with it? Tashma, come in here. And don't do a kamea at the time when it is not from a um, an experienced writer. Nothing. So you see from here that if it's written a kamea that's written by a monka by an experienced writer, then you're allowed to go out with it on the, in, on Shabbos. But if you say the kamea has holiness in it, you're gonna have to take it off to go to the bathroom. How are you allowed to go out with this on Shabbos? Sometimes you go out on Shabbos and you go to the public domain and you need to go to the bathroom. And what's going to happen? You're going to end up having to take it off and you'll walk with it for Amos in the public domain because you're not allowed to wear it into the, into the bathroom. Oh, must be we're talking about a case where it was a Kamea, it was not a Kamea that has Hashem's name in it, rather it's just a Kamea that is, has the herbs in it, that the textful herbs. Sorry, I skipped the line. We learned in the price earlier, we already learned this. We said whether the Kamea is a Kamea with Hashem's name in it or whether it's the Kamea that has uh, the herbs in it, you're allowed to go out on Shabbos. So that's not true. Why are you allowed to go out with a Kamea that has Hashem's name in it if you're not allowed to go into the bathroom, but you're, you're liable to take it off? In a case where this guy is in a status of a Chola who is in danger to his life, since he's in danger to his life, he's not going to take this off even if he gets to a bathroom, because he doesn't want to, if it's a question of danger to your life when you're wearing this kamea, you're not obligated to take it off even if he's going to the bathroom with the kamea on. Okay, because this is like on the fascist. Like on the fascist, you're allowed to wear the bathroom with the bathroom. We learned in a vice, not like that, that this is referring to whether it's someone who's going out with the Kamea because he's in a status of where his life is in danger, whether it's someone who's in the status of his life is not in danger, he's still allowed to go out with this Kamea. Since he is someone who is since he's someone who's in, in danger, even if he goes and carries it in his hand, he's still permitted to do that. So carrying something in your hand, the kamea that's going to protect you from illness, you're permitted to go outside carrying this in your hand 
even though normally you would say carrying something in the street on Shabbos is obviously forbidden, when the purpose of carrying this in your hand is to protect you from, from illness, and it actually is a satisfactory and efficacious treatment to protect you from illness, then you're even considered, you're permitted to go out in the street. The way Rashi explains it is, it's it becomes his his ornament, right? It becomes his, the ornament, and the ornament you are allowed to wear on Shabbos. So what's going to happen? He's going to get to the bathroom, he'll take off the kameel, he'll cover it in his hand when he goes into the bathroom. Since it's covered in his hand, he's actually permitted to go into the bathroom with it. I, he's going to carry it. It's okay to carry a kameel. It actually is efficacious. It's okay to carry because that it falls into the category of tachshit, or something that is a ornament and that is permitted to carry in the street on Shabbos.